talked about our liberties as a gift for building the church, and we spent quite a bit of time on that because uh, I think it's one of the most important components of this study. Uh, the question I posed was, if my liberties have this purpose of building the church, then is there anything that doesn't? Um, and I'm convinced, and hopefully you're becoming more convinced, that, uh, that uh, there is no other purpose for everything that we've been given in, at this time in, in history than building the church. Uh, and we saw in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 and then Galatians 5 and 6 that Paul ties this in, the idea of using our liberties and everything we have, basically, to, to serve and invest in the church. He ties that in uh, with perseverance as a motivation. And he couches it in Galatians, especially in terms of spiritual warfare. Either you will be spending what you have for the building of the church, which leads to life, or you will be spending what you have on yourself, which leads to death. Um, and you'll see, we're going to pick up on that theme a little bit more today, and it goes beautifully with what Dan's preaching this morning. So that's a nice providence. Uh, then we looked uh, at spending our gifts in the home for the purpose of building the church. Uh, and this was, you know, we saw for moms especially, but also all of us, that a believer in the home is a gift to the others in that home. Uh, and then finally, we ended by looking at the first part of uh, a point of spending our gifts in the workplace for the purpose of building the church, and that's where we're going to pick up today. Uh, so you see that on your outline. Point one, spending our gifts in the workplace for the purpose of building the church. Uh, and the first place we're going to look is Proverbs. Um, you may have heard Proverbs 11 referred to as the Christian businessman's chapter. Um, we're not going to look at that whole thing. Actually, we're just going to take verse 1 where uh, he says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So you see uh, the importance of integrity, of honesty in business. And then Proverbs 18.9, you get the other view because that's sort of the proprietor of a business. This is more the worker, uh, the employee. Proverbs 18.9 says, Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. And so you start to see there it's, it's pitting destruction by doing the wrong thing, having dishonesty or lack of integrity, uh, versus what we've been looking at, building up. Um, so if you're not destroying, you're building up. So not being slack in your work is, can include the exercise of spiritual gifts. Uh, and then we see it, of course, in the law, um, looking at Leviticus 19.35 and 36. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances just weights and a just ephah and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And as we've seen throughout, he roots this in their identification with him as their God. This is important to him, so important that uh, he bases the necessity for it in his very character, in, in the reality that he is their God. And then in Deuteronomy 24, uh, verses 14 and 15, this has to do with the employee-employer relationship, which, like I said, we would get to in the last part of the study on using our gifts in the workplace. Uh, verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And here there's an interesting duality in terms of enslavement and freedom. Either the master, whom you might think of as only being free, will be enslaved to a desire to oppress his worker, or he will practice freedom from that desire to instead serve God as a slave to righteousness. So you see that the, the master, whom we might think of only as being free, has a choice between enslavement to sin and freedom to be a slave to righteousness. Uh, and he can do that. He, can, it, he can, be, can be a slave to righteousness exercising his freedom by treating his employee well and promptly paying him a fair wage. This is where the master will find true freedom. 
And it's difficult because he has the appearance of being in control. And you have a delegated amount of, of responsibilities to some degree, uh, no matter who you are. Uh, like Dan said this morning, and, and we'll probably say in the second service, do, having dominion over the earth, having rule over the earth, it starts with self-control. So that at least is the degree of, of uh, control you have, and it's an appearance of being in control. So the more control you appear to have, the more deceitful it could be, you could think, I'm always in control. And that's going to be the, the, the difficulty to overcome on the part of a master, on the part of a rich person. Uh, and we'll see later in other ways also. Uh, but, oh yeah, and I just said there, that's part of the reason it's so difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So you see that in Jesus' teaching also. And then we see these themes in greater detail, and we have more explanation in the New Testament. Um, let's turn to Ephesians 6. We're going to start in verse 5. Paul writes, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Now here we see two components of what makes a spiritual gift. Something brought with a good will, or as Paul says in the first verse, there's a sincere heart. Uh, and then specifically for the Lord's purpose. He says, as to the Lord and not to man. So the Lord has a purpose in it. And think about it. You'll definitely be relying on this, the Holy Spirit's assistance. So bringing it more in line with the idea of a spiritual gift. And maybe even using some of the gifts from the list. I mean, you can imagine as you're doing your work as unto the Lord, you're going to be using Knowledge, wisdom, faith, service, evangelism. And we'll see a lot more of evangelism in the whole uh, workplace context. And then using your freedom, which is implied because he's giving bondservants, basically, he's not giving them an option, he's giving them a command. But he's, he's couching it in terms of this is something that they're free to do as slaves of righteousness. Uh, verse 8. So he's saying rendering with a good... Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. That's verse 7. Verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So he's giving the motivation. We see motivation here again. Motivation of reward. Uh, and reward uh, is always something he talks in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9 about things that will survive the fire. And he's speaking specifically there in terms of his service to the church. And that's Paul's vocation is in service to the church. But wherever you see reward, it's because something uh, is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So we see here again, he's speaking of the context of the workplace, but these are things that are going to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit because he's saying you'll receive them as a reward. So they'll pass through that fire at the judgment and be things that have eternal value. Um, again, relating at least very closely to spiritual gifts. Uh, so we see that just like we saw in the home, we're never removed from our work of building the church, even when we're at work. Paul sees working as unto the Lord in the church just as much as he sees work as he's doing as an apostle, as the work of building the church. And think about this practically. If you're following what he says here, you're being sanctified personally. You're providing for and raising a godly family. You're giving to the church, perhaps supporting ministry workers like Paul, who couldn't do their work apart from your work. Hopefully we're seeing that the connections are everywhere. 
and then picking back up in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. And we'll look back. What is it that he's, he's telling them to do? He's telling them, verse 7, to render service with a good will. So he's actually telling masters to render service to their employees, to their slaves. Uh, this is servant leadership. You know, if you've been delegated authority, you're expected to exercise it in a certain way. Um, so he's telling them to render service to their employees. He says, stop your threatening, knowing that, it, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Uh, and that's, that's very much like what we saw in Deuteronomy 24, where, where uh, the writer says, or, or God says, actually, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. There's no place for heavy-handedness in the exercise of, of biblical authority. Uh, and again here is an allusion to the truth that a man in an elevated position, a position of authority, will be tempted to put faith in his position. Paul combats that by reminding them that there is no partiality with God. He is not a respecter of men, and he is not impressed with your position of authority. On the contrary, he has delegated it to you and expects you to use it to serve his purposes, which is building the church. Uh, so we're going to look at a few more New Testament passages uh, to see uh, the employee, employer, the workplace context. Um, these, these two here, uh, we're going to see that evangelism is a key aspect. 1 Timothy 6, uh, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So, verse 1, you kind of get the idea that uh, he's speaking to people who will be working for unbelieving employers or unbelieving masters, but still counting them as worthy of all honor. I think we mentioned uh, earlier in the study the idea of honoring uh, the government officials that God has given us, even if they're corrupt, because God's put them there for our good. Uh, so you see the same thing in this employee-employer or master-slave relationship. But then he speaks also to people who are employed by uh, believers and says, all the more uh, should you be respectful uh, of them because uh, those who benefit by your good service are believers and beloved. So you will see this works every which way. And then Titus 2, 9 and 10 Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So you see, even, even there, they're adorning the doctrine of God. Um, and in the first one we looked at, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Your witness is going to be bolstered by the way you submit to these uh, concepts, you submit to these commands. And then remember from last week, we looked at how Paul used his freedom in the Lord to work hard in order to benefit the spread of the gospel, even though he had a God-given right to make a living as an apostle and evangelist. Um, from 1 Thessalonians 2, 6-9, through 9, he says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So, what we're seeing is honesty, integrity, hard work, 
uh, even using our freedom when, when we might be free uh, not to work hard or not to work additionally, uh, using that to promote the gospel to bolster our witness. Then finally, we have Paul's letter to Philemon, who is a believer in the church of Colossae. Uh, Paul's major concern in this letter is for Onesimus, who is Philemon's slave, but who apparently stole from Philemon and ran away. Um, and you might turn there. We're going to go through uh, verses 8 through 17. Uh, so Philemon apparently has stolen, I'm sorry, Onesimus apparently has stolen and run away from Philemon. Uh, but he ended up meeting Paul and becoming a Christian, and, and now Paul is sending Onesimus back to his master, along with this letter, and in all likelihood, the letter to the Colossians. And by the way, Colossians includes uh, a, an excerpt that's very similar to Ephesians 5 through uh, 8 or so that we looked at earlier. Um, so he's bringing a letter uh, that includes uh, instructions that, that Paul gives regarding the master-slave relationship, in addition to the letter uh, to Philemon. Uh, starting with verse 8, Paul writes, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. So we see right there at the start, Paul is exercising a liberty in love, uh, and he goes on to do that. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. He's, he's showing the humility, the humbleness of his circumstances. He could boost himself up as an authority, as an apostle, but he chooses not to do that. He prefers um, uh, Philemon by exercising his liberty to do that. Verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, so still from humility. For my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And then verse 11, he says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And we see there uh, the uselessness or the lack of eternal value to works done apart from the Spirit. But now Onesimus is saved, and he's, he's doing his work according to the Holy Spirit. So now he's useful, and Paul will go on to, uh, to explain that further. Um, and he, here he's giving Philemon an opportunity to use his freedom to spend his relationship with his authority over Philemon as his master, I mean over Onesimus as his master, for the sake of the gospel. Uh, whether him sending back to Paul or employing him for some other good purpose. Verse 12, Paul says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So Paul's concerned with whatever benefit he might receive from Philemon, that it's of eternal value for Philemon. So if it's a compulsion, he's saying it's, it's not a benefit ultimately to Philemon. But if it's from the, the right desires of Philemon's heart to serve the building up of the church by the way he uses or provides Onesimus for use for the church, then it is of eternal value. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So you see just the loving concern that Paul has, both for Philemon and, and Onesimus, both being brothers, uh, even though they're, one's a master and the other's the slave. And what we see from all these texts, this works every which way, whether you're a believer, working for a believer, or working for an unbeliever, or you're a believer employing a believer or an unbeliever, 
You are to use your liberties and your delegated authority and responsibilities and all other gifts for the purpose of building the church in each of these contexts. In this way, you will be like your father who loves honesty and business. You will adorn the gospel. You will be an effective witness, and you will love your brother by either rendering excellent service or by paying a fair wage, in either case, granting him the opportunity to fulfill his calling in the church, whether that's giving, uh, raising a godly family, or uh, anything else that the Lord has given him. Uh, moving on to point two on the back of the sheet there. We're going to look at the priority of the church in the use of our gifts. Uh, and now that we've looked at the idea of spending our spiritual gifts in the home and in the workplace for the purpose of, sp uh, of building the church in both cases, let's get back to the main place and the main focus in terms of where the Lord wants to see us making our investments, and that is the local church, to the end of perfecting or preparing the universal church, the Bride of Christ. Now, I'm guessing that I don't need to do much to convince the people in this room that the main context God intends for our investment of our spiritual gifts is the local church under the authority of biblical elders. But uh, I just thought, in case we'd consider a couple of texts. First, from Galatians 6, where we were last week, in order to demonstrate uh, the purpose of what we received, we received uh, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And that term, household of faith, meets up well with what's probably the text that most clearly demonstrates the reality that the local church is what God intends as the physical and practical representation of the universal church in the world. Uh, and that is the body and, and bride of Christ, but the, the, the physical representation is the local church. And we get this, among other places, in 2 Timothy 3, where Paul spends the first 13 verses giving Timothy clear and practical instructions for delegating authority and responsibility to godly men and women in the local church. And that's clear. I mean, he's setting up a structure for operation in, in the church in Ephesus where Timothy is. And then in verse 15, he explains, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So that meets up with household of faith, he, which he describes then as a pillar and buttress, I'm sorry, as the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we see there that the local church equals the household of God, the household of faith, uh, which is how it's described in Galatians 6.10, where the purpose of our freedoms, as we have opportunity, is to do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The purpose of our freedoms and all of our gifts. Uh, so, so the church takes priority in terms of the investment of our gifts, and as hopefully is becoming clear, and hopefully will be more clear, is the ultimate beneficiary of the right investment of our gifts, everything we've received by either definition, no matter the context, the home, the work, uh, your workplace, when you're alone, or otherwise. Uh, now, to, to further establish the priority of the local church, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, we're going to look at verses 27 through 38. And incidentally, this is uh, uh, picking up a few verses past where we left off last week uh, when we were looking at how a believer is a gift to his or her home. Paul ends that section in verse 16. And what follows that section, uh, verses 17 through 26, it's interesting to note that Paul brings up the issues of the law and liberty, saying in verse 19 that neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, the issue that was um, dividing the Galatians, but keeping the commandment of God. So there's this uh, dichotomy. He, he continues throughout these, um, these passages of freedom to obey, uh, which is also slavery to righteousness. 
And then in verse 20, he starts to transition to the issue we're going to focus in on. He says in verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And what he's leading up to is this, a passage that is crystal clear as to the priority of the church, starting in verse 27. He asks, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Uh, And it's good to note, God is so gracious to start this section this way. As we'll see, a man or a woman could be tempted by what follows to believe that their spouse is a drag on them, their spouse or their children, Uh, that, that, that being bound to a spouse or to children is keeping them from doing the Lord's work the way the Lord would want. As Paul would say, may it never be. Um, And, of course, that's why he uh, gives this firm rule several verses earlier in verse 17, where he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which the Lord has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So he gives extra emphasis to that. He's, He's basically giving them a warning because you have to know that if you are married, you have received a precious gift and a stewardship from the Lord. And your marriage, as we looked at last week briefly, uh, is one of the primary contexts, and maybe even the primary context the Lord has provided you if you're married, where you are to invest your gifts for the building of the church. Uh, And with that note of caution, which I really think is a note of caution on Paul's part, he, he continues in verse 27. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now we should sense here that Paul is maintaining a very careful tension. He starts with that word of caution, and we can take from that you will have to live as if you're married. You will have to rejoice. You will have to buy and sell. He's not, he's not telling them literally not to do those things, but he wants to get his point across. Even though he knows that his words could be misused for the purposes of promoting legalism, divorce, or asceticism, he wants to get this point across. The present form of this world is passing away. Marriage and family relationships, along with buying and selling, rejoicing and, and finding pleasure in worldly things, These are all parts of the form of this world that is passing away. Uh, And it's helpful to to look at at Jesus' teaching here and just to see how it lines up. We remember when the the Sadducees thought that they could catch Jesus off guard by showing him the absurdity of what the Pharisees believed about the resurrection. Unlike the the Sadducees, the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, but they thought that they would have the same wife and children for all eternity. So the Sadducees came to him trying to show the absurdity of that. And he responds to them, Uh, For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So again, marriage is is part of the form of this world that's passing away. And if we look, we see this in other places in in Jesus' teaching as well, Uh, including in his response to men who wanted to delay following him to tend to worldly relationships and concerns, which we find in Luke 9, uh, starting with verse 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord... Let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, And then we have his response when he was told that his mother and brothers were looking for him in Mark 3, uh, starting in verse 33. 
And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now again, it's important to keep the tension that both Jesus and Paul intend in their teaching and in their examples. To honor parents was very important to Jesus. The Pharisees are a prime example of those who would use supposed investment in the Lord's work as an excuse to ignore other commandments. And he had very stern words for them from Mark 7, verse 10. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have, is, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God. And that's, that's condemnatory. By your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Jesus does not look kindly on those who neglect an earthly stewardship in the name of serving the Lord. He points out their disobedience and says that they make void the word of God. And we find that, although we may think his words uh, regarding his family were harsh, he counted his responsibility to care for his mother so important that one of the last things he did as he was dying on the cross was to be sure that she was taken care of. From John 19, verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Then on the other side of this balance, uh, we have one more thing to note here. We know, of course, from the Mark 3 passage that Mary had other sons, and from other passages, of course, who were uh, other sons who were Jesus' biological brothers. Why would he assign John to, ta to care for her? Well, looking back at Mark 3, uh, in verse 21, we read, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So the reason his mother and his brothers were coming to him was because he was an embarrassment to his family, and they wanted to stop him. Um, and, and John also uh, testifies to the same reality. It says in, in uh, John 7, verse 5, that not even his brothers believed in him. Uh, so it would seem safe to conclude that even as Jesus is there on the cross in agony, he is showing the priority of his local church, assigning one of his disciples to care for Mary instead of allowing one of his unbelieving brothers or sisters to do it. Um, and then we can note, you know, he's, God is so gracious, uh, and we see by Acts 1 uh, that it's likely that, uh, that uh, at least some of Jesus' brothers had, had received him as Lord and Savior. Uh, in verse 14, we read, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And then remarkably, there's even further testimony, his brothers Jude and James, uh, who are believed to have written the New Testament books bearing their names, called themselves slaves of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Quite the turnaround. Uh, but seeing clearly that Jesus walks the same line as Paul, uh, let's look back at 1 Corinthians 7, uh, picking up at verse 32. Paul writes, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So while some of us do have the gifts of marriage and children, others of us have the gift of singleness. And we see in this passage that Paul is exalting the gift of singleness. The person who is single is free to be poured out in the service of the local church, or at least freer. 
and this is the Paul's point, is that, that a wife uh, and children um, leave someone less free, or a husband and children would leave someone less free in that regard. And we see this at Calvary. I mean, if you're familiar with the single-serving ministry, they're, they're incredibly effective in ministry. Um, they, they capitalize on their freedom that Paul's talking about here. Uh, with someone who's single, uh, there are many fewer concerns. They don't have to ask, am I rightly prioritizing my marriage and my time with my kids? These concerns just aren't there. Although, th- of course, there, there could be other concerns. Um, and again here, there's a parallel with Jesus' teaching. Um, when he talks about the difficulty or the impossibility of a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven, that man's earthly stewardship is entirely likely to obscure his view of the heavenly realities of the revelations we received in Christ. Remember, the rich young ruler was standing there looking the beautiful savior of the world in the face, and the fleeting and corroding values of his riches kept him from seeing the eternal glories of the world's only savior. Now, we've been trying to maintain this balance, this tension that we see in both Jesus and Paul, and we're rightly cautious about saying that your family could be your idol because it's so dangerous to our families and to our church to go off the rails in the opposite direction. And that's, you know, last week's teaching on on, um, spiritual gifts in the home would be a good counterbalance to this. But we see clearly in these texts the teaching uh, that your husband or wife or your children could be your idol. Paul's, Paul's not saying it just to those who are single in verse 35. Uh, he's saying this for the benefit of everyone reading, not to lay any restraint upon them, but to promote, promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, whether you're married or single, you need to have undivided devotion to the Lord. And you're going to be spending yourself in your home. You're going to be spending yourself in the workplace, even though that may seem like a division. Kind of what I'm trying to show here is that you're building the church in all of these contexts. Uh, And picking back up in verse 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Uh, So Paul's filling us in here. Um, The question would be, how do you tell if you have the gift of singleness? Well, the first test came back in verses 17 and 27, where he said, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and asked, "Are are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. It is so critical that we have a robust doctrine of God's providence when we're considering our gifts and callings and that we intentionally cultivate gratitude for the boundless and measureless mercy and grace we've received, no matter our position, our possessions, our relationship statuses, or our gifts, or or any of this stuff. We need to have gratitude and contentment with what we've received, including our position or our our, uh, uh, degree of singleness or or marriage or, or having children. We need to have contentment. Uh, If you haven't cultivated gratitude and contentedness, uh, you're likely to misuse what Paul says in in these verses, 36 and 37. And this is the second part of the test to know whether or not you have the gift of singleness. If you have a desire to marry, then marry. But be careful. Just because you have the desire to marry doesn't mean that you don't have the gift of singleness. Implicit in what Paul says here is that the Lord has provided the person to marry. If no such provision has been made, then the desires need to be redirected. And, and another important point here, there are requirements for the person you're going to marry. So, so you may have an interest in someone who's an unbeliever, but that's not the Lord's provision of someone for you to marry because you know it's against a command. 
So if no such provision has been made, then the desire to be married needs to be redirected, at least for now. The single person needs to seek contentedness and gratitude for the life that the Lord has assigned to him. And this, not unlike everyone else's life, as hopefully we're seeing, should result in a life of devoted service to what God is doing in building his church, whether in the workplace or in the specific service to the local church uh, or in the home and, and probably elsewhere. And then one more verse in this section. Paul leaves us with one last plug for singleness and devotion so serving, to serving the Lord without the added responsibilities of a spouse and family. Verse 38. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So again, leaving with a priority on, on the, the freedom, the, the additional freedom to serve the local church. Uh, next, still under uh, the section on the priority of the local church, or the priority of the church in spending our gifts, uh, where did I put this here? Uh, point D, under, under number two, will you be good or bad leaven? There are several occasions in scripture where points are made using the illustration of the effectiveness of just a small bit of yeast at leavening an entire loaf of bread. In fact, more than one loaf, a little bit of yeast is actually good for leavening many loaves of bread. If you take a small piece of dough that has already been leavened, you can introduce it into a new loaf and soon that entire loaf will be leavened and so on and so forth. You could, you could have a real economy of yeast. Paul uses this reality twice to describe the devastating effects of sin of one person on the rest of the fellowship. Uh, in the context of immorality being tolerated in the church at Corinth, from 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And then in the context of false teaching among the Galatians in Galatians 5, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And just a tie in there, we see perseverance. He says, you were running well, and now a little bit of leaven has cast doubt on their, on their ability or the, the, the reality that they would finish the race. Uh, praise the Lord, the opposite is also true, uh, that a little bit of leaven of righteousness can leaven the whole lump. And Jesus makes this point uh, in Matthew 13 two ways. First with the, uh, the mustard seed. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man look, took and sowed in the, his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So we have a choice to make. Will we be good leaven or bad leaven? Peter frames it this way, and this should help you see how it relates to our larger conversation on gifts. 1 Peter 2, live as people who are free. So Peter's telling them how to use their liberty. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So focus in on cover-up there, uh, because it's, it's another analogy. Uh, light kills sin. Um, and you may have heard it said, I think I first heard this said by Pastor Dan, that the most important scripture text for marriage is 1 John 1, uh, 5 through 9 or so, 5 through 10. Um, and, and marriage being a reflection of, of Christ's relationship to the church, it's probably one of the most important texts for, uh, for the church also, starting in verse 5 in 1 John 1. This is, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. 
that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. How does sin die? By coming to the light. Now, in context, this could mean confession to one another, so, so a more uh, interpersonal uh, interaction, or it could mean confession of sin and repentance before the Lord. Either way, you're bringing your sin to the light so that it would die, and you're doing what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Uh, if we don't do what Peter said, if we don't do what John is exhorting us to in 1 John 1, uh, and if we want sin to die, uh, we can't use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. We have to bring it to the light. Uh, if we do use our sin for our, uh, our freedom as a cover-up for evil, it will only grow and it will hurt the fellowship by being bad leaven. Uh, in this point, I included, hopefully to tie a nice big bow around the idea that all of our gifts, and in this case, our freedom, all of our gifts are for the edification of the church. And this could relate back to the point on honesty in business also. Even in small decisions that are made seemingly a world re removed from the local church have ramifications for the good or for the harming of God's church. Because these decisions are opportunities to either indulge or deny the flesh. Remember the progression in James 1 but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, what is, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And in chapter 4, he asks, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your passions that wage war in your members? Abiding those sinful desires and, and making the wrong choice on how you're going to deal with those, even in your alone time, even alone with your thoughts, has repercussions uh, for the body. Uh, next, we're going to look at uh, number three, stewardship. And uh, along with liberties, um, this is probably one of the most important points in our study. Uh, and it shows how we're free and yet enslaved to righteousness. And we're going to read a chunk from Matthew 25, starting with uh, verse 14, where Jesus is describing the, king, the kingdom of heaven by um, using the parable of the talents. Uh, so Matthew 25, starting with verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So he also, or so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me the five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now speaking of tying it all together, this really does it quite nicely. All in one text we have stewardship, uh, natural ability, worldly goods, varying levels of sovereign provision, a choice between good and evil, and the contrast between perseverance into reward and being delivered over into eternal torment, conscious torment. Uh, what I want us to focus on particularly is at the beginning in verse 14 when it says, the master entrusted to them his property. What is the master entrusted to us? For what will we have to give account? Everything. You have a stewardship over everything. Your time, your alarm clock, your family, your job, your money, your liberties, your Bible, your authority, your service, your pleasures, your ability to read, your responsibilities. The list could go on and on. It's everything. And as we've noted repeatedly from 1 Corinthians 4.7, everything we have, we've received. And from Acts 17.25, God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Uh, and one more uh, text uh, to make the point of using uh, what the text calls unrighteous wealth uh, for the kingdom. Uh, Luke 9, and you might turn there, we're going to look at 1 through 12. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write down eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, this uh, can be a difficult text because it seems like the Lord is encouraging uh, unrighteousness, dishonesty, uh, but we'll see that that's not the case. He continues, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Oh, the wrong citation. Anyone know where that is? <laughs> Sixteen? Sixteen. Don't know how I got Luke 9. Okay, so uh, what we see here is that we all, 
righteous and unrighteous receive a worldly stewardship. The unrighteous or uh, dishonest manager uh, had delegated authority, and he used it. He used it to accomplish an objective. Uh, but what the, the unrighteous, what's true of the unrighteous is that they love the physical wealth itself. Uh, and they are more shrewd than the righteous who fail to use their worldly stewardships to make eternal investments. So you see him using his, his worldly stewardship to make a, a temporal investment. And Jesus is encouraging that worldly wealth be used uh, to make eternal investments. Starting in verse 10, he says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So we have to be honest and faithful with our stewardships, and those are going to include spiritual gifts, worldly gifts. It's all a gift. It's all a stewardship. If, then, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, so again, it's not your own. It belongs to another. It comes from God. Who will give you uh, that which is your own? Um, and, and his point, I got a little thrown there, but it was verse 9 where he says, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. He's talking about using unrighteous wealth to build the kingdom. How do you make friends that will receive you into the kingdom? Evangelism. Using unrighteous wealth for the building of the church. And evangelism is not the only way. I mean, we see that living your life, spending your gifts for the building of the church is going to make friends that will receive you into eternal dwellings. And there is no exception to this. Uh, what does the Lord expect? Investment in what he is doing in the world. And like we saw, this includes intentional investment everywhere, at home, in the workplace, and even when we're just alone with our thoughts. So if you remember, we started all the way back in the first week by considering whether there's anything we have that falls outside of our gifting, and also whether it's true that the only thing the Lord is doing in the world is building his church. I'm hopeful that this study has successfully demonstrated that everything we have we have received as a gift and that the sole purpose for which God has given all we have is to build his church, whether at home, at work, at church, or even when we're by ourselves. And this is a simultaneously blessed and fearful stewardship. Uh, so with that, uh, we have a few minutes, and I just thought I'd take questions. Um, actually, I'm going to start by answering one that I heard uh, that was a question from last week. Uh, on the teaching of using our liberties uh, for, the, for the sole purpose of building the church. And the question was basically along the lines of um, uh, what if someone has a preference, like uh, that I don't wear jeans? Um, do I have to serve that preference even though it might not be biblical? And uh, I had, had referenced Dan's sermons um, from 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, which somewhere in there, and I'm not sure which one, he talks about the idea of the professional uh, weaker brother which is the person who always is offended by everything. Um, and we see that in Galatians. The Galatians are making an issue of the law. Uh, so just like with everything else, God's, God's word is sufficient to answer that. Um, a person who is perpetually offended, uh, claims to have a weak conscience perhaps, <coughs> eventually they can be confronted by other, others in the church, perhaps the elders, um, and, and they're not using their liberty uh, to cover things in love know, in terms of a style preference or something. So, yes, our liberties are to serve the purpose of the church, but our liberties are not necessarily to serve um, someone else's self-seeking uh, and desiring that you conform to their rules. Uh, so scripture should govern all of that. So you have a, a give and take in terms of using your liberties. Uh, so with that, I'll open it up. Anyone who has a question?
out all at once. Yes. Right, right. There's no indication in the text that uh, the wealth was gained dishonestly. Um, now, there was dishonesty perhaps in the way the manager used, well, he was being dishonest. So perhaps some of it was gained dishonestly. We don't really know if the master was angry that there was an accumulation of wealth because the manager was being dishonest. It's more likely he was embezzling probably. But um, basically, it's mammon. Uh, so it would be distinct, it would probably be, I mean, it would, it would certainly be in this category because everything we have we've received, but not everything is, is under the divine assistance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so that would be more of what you would think of as unrighteous wealth. So where it's clear that something's not quite, you know, blurring this line, and it's clearly in the category of something that's not a divine enablement, uh, it would be under the category of right, unrighteous, unrighteous wealth, like a natural skill. I mean, that would be unrighteous skill. else? Going once, going twice? All right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, you are, are good and so gracious. Lord, we thank you for uh, a time uh, over weeks that we could consider your graciousness through the gifts that you provided. And Lord, we thank you for the overwhelming testimony your word bears to the fact that um, everything we have is a gift, Lord, that for those who are yours, um, everything works together for our good. Lord, that everything is pure grace. Lord, it's true that everything this side of hell is pure grace. And Lord, we have the hope of heaven, the hope of the resurrection. So Lord, we pray that you administer that hope to our hearts. Lord, that um, in the rest of our time together, we would be ministering your word to one another. Lord, effectively. Um, Lord, being convicted of sin and repenting, even in the secret places of our hearts. Lord, show us our sin that uh, we might be good leaven, Lord, that you might continue to, to build up your church and love through the outpouring of the gifts that you've given to each of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.